People want more democracy, not less. It's time to talk progressive politics and practical solutions with Joy Silver. Outspoken from Radio 111. Now, here's Joy. Hello, hello, everyone. Today's show, The Big Lies and the Unleashing of Fascism in America. I'm going to start with a quote from Tommy Douglas, and this is his quote. Once more, let me remind you what fascism is. I need not wear a brown shirt or a green shirt. Fascism begins the moment a ruling class, fearing that people may use their political democracy to gain economic democracy, begins to destroy political democracy in order to retain its power of exploitation and special privilege. Now, if you don't remember who Tommy Douglas was, well, he was a Canadian politician who served as a seventh premier of Saskatchewan from 1944 to 1961, and he is credited with introducing Canada's single-payer universal health care program. So that was Tommy Douglas giving us the definition of fascism. And more to that point, we have with us today a guest. His name is Walter Rhine. I hope I'm saying your last name correctly, Walter. You'll let me know once uh, we bring you in. Walter is a novelist and social justice writer. He splits his time between Wisconsin and Peru. That's right. His provocative articles on Medium are designed to break down faulty cultural assumptions and begin new conversations on how we might best collectively pursue progress as a society. Uh, hello, Walter. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm very excited about having you today, Walter. Um, did I say your last name correctly? Yep, absolutely. Oh, great, okay. Uh, I also know that you are, you are a writer of uh, books as well, is that not so? Yes, I write, I've written for a couple of small uh, press publications. Nothing, you know, quite as serious as the political stuff I like to write. More, I have I have a book about uh, skiing the American Birkebeiner, which is a cross country ski race here in Wisconsin, and I have a memoir about the ten years I spent living in Peru. Yes, so that's a that's quite a distance between Wisconsin and Peru. You must have some interesting. Uh, when they say the big picture overhead, you probably have a lot of time to think about many things going through those two places. I definitely recommend that everybody takes the time to spend not just a week or a month, but if you can, try to get a year out of out of your country or out of your comfort zone, just to that point where you're first, you know, you're in a place where you don't recognize anything, and it allows you the chance to kind of reinvent yourself and, you know, get a new perception of how the rest of the world perceives reality. I think that's a that's a real critical thing because um, right now we're dealing with the big lies and that seems to be the bottom line of the unleashing of fascism in America and I know that uh, you have quite a few uh, pieces uh, articles on that particular subject about the unleashing of fascism can you tell us a little bit about well let's start with the big lie as the energizer oh there's just so many things going on right now and I you know the big lie of the the uh, the elections it, Trump's repeated unfounded lies about the election fraud are are so irritating, and of course they led to the uh, insurrection on January sixth. That I still don't think people are taking that seriously enough, and just the state and what that represents, the threat that that was against our country, um, and and then you're looking and you're seeing this defense of it in so many places. You're seeing so much money going into it, 
And and one of the things that I've noticed over the last couple of months is how many people on, you know, Facebook or social media, they say, well, what's going on? You know, this is the country that defeated the Nazis. Why is it that we're so willing to embrace fascism now? And I took that and I, I thought about it for a while. And it made me just kind of reflect on what our history must have been at that time, where, you know, everybody's looking at the past through this kind of idealized lens, you know, of what they an idealized oversimplification of American history. They want to believe of our, in our, you know, the greatness of our nation. But the reality is things are always a lot messier, you know, at the time than they are when you write about it in the history books later. And so it just, it kind of came to the conclusion that had a few dominoes fallen differently, you know, during World War II, we might have been on the other side of that conflict. Well, Could have very easily turned out that way. Well, before we take uh, that road uh, into the history, because I'm very interested in your um, your take on that, uh, but isn't part of the the big lie? Isn't aren't isn't that history part of that big lie? Oh, now you're talking as you're you're defining because there's a lot of big lies going around. So we're talking <laughs> about the election fraud. Well, you Just know, be clear. the big lies that are fomenting today's uh, movements towards the right, that's one thing. But I think supporting that are the big lies of what hi- of what American history looks like. And you do refer to that from a historical perception. I mean, one of the things you just said that's interesting to me is you don't think that um, the American public is is taking seriously enough what happened on January 6th. Now, why do you say that? Why do you say we don't take it seriously? What do you see that's missing? Well, just the comprehension of, of what was at stake. I mean, I perceive it, and, you know, it, it was an attempt to overthrow our democracy. And it's, it's really a, a terrifying thing. We're having a couple now. We're getting to a point where a couple politicians, even on the Republican side, are saying, you know, there was a couple that did vote to impeach uh, based on that event. But it's it's so few. And, and some of the things that people are worried about now is this, this effort, this concentrated effort on the part of the Republican Party, because they've received basically no pushback or not enough pushback from the insurrection, that they are, they're looking at it, it. It exposed the vulnerabilities of our democracy. Mm-hmm. It exposed exactly how you can overturn an election. And it really just comes down to a couple people certifying votes, throwing votes out. It doesn't take many people at the end of the day. And we always know every single election comes down to a million or so votes here and there. You know, the whole country can vote. But and if you do that voter erosion, which the Republicans have gotten very good at, you know, you're 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 limiting the, the ability of people to vote. You're you're discarding votes. And then if you get election officials who figure out ways to disqualify even more votes, you know, it's, it's, it's just and if they get the people in there that are willing to listen to the the commands of a, you know, of a dictator who says, find me more votes, mm. then we don't have a democracy. That's, uh, that's pretty frightening. And But you thinking that the American public isn't really uh, taking it seriously enough. But I think what you're describing is, um, is, a, uh, is a takeover on, on many levels. It's not simply, um, it's a political level as well as a, uh, an insurrection in a, in a physical sense. I mean, it's putting in place all of the pieces that are necessary to take it over from a political point of view. And I think part of what you talk about in some of your articles is how that parallels a time earlier, not necessarily um, in this country, but was happening um, during the 
uh, during just before World War II, but also how did America look in that time period? And what are you thinking that, uh, that surprises you about what happened, given what you understand history to be? Yeah, well, currently what's going on, the, the, the increase in violence, and it bothers me, too, that you're seeing so much violence on the right. And, and especially, I mean, you're seeing it in our communities here, this discussion about uh, critical race theory, which the, the way the right uses that term is just not even accurate for what it is. They've turned it into kind of a, a coded language where they can use to incite, um, incite people. It has no basis in what the academic theory is even about. And you're seeing people get attacked. I mean, school board members, this is happening. And there's news stories all over the place where school board members are receiving violent threats, and a lot of these individuals are leaving their positions. My wife's been a teacher, and, and since um, Trump began his campaign, his first campaign for the primary, she's, she's received an increase in just hostility. We're a Spanish-speaking family, so we see that out in public where people come up and tell us not to speak Spanish in the United States. And it's just, it goes back. I mean, you got the brown shirts. They, they just, this disruption, the violent reaction, the violent response, that's definitely something that's historically been on the right. And then you look back even further, and there's a book called um, Hitler's American Model by James Q. Whitman, hmm. where, it, where it goes through, and, it, and this book is very interesting because a lot of Hitler's inspiration for Nazism came out of the racist Jim Crow laws of the, Amer Jim Crow laws of the American South. They've got the transcripts from, you know, when they were coming up with the Nuremberg Laws, prominent Nazis were citing what was going on in America. And it's just, I don't think people, and, and so then we get back to today, well, we're refusing to discuss thing, you know, the actual American history under the guise of, you know, this code of language where the, where the right wing doesn't like the word critical race theory. And they're using that so that we completely cover up the real true history of slavery and oppression that's taken place in the United States. Now, this is, um, this is you're, you're making a, a very uh, good parallel, I think, between what our historical references are and how we got to where we were in that period of time and where we are today. But you had something interesting to me um, in one of your articles that discussed um, your, how you felt the, you saw the Americans stand up to the fascist forces. And, and part of your, in, in one of your articles, you mentioned that you were surprised by this. Can you tell me what was surprising to you about that? Well, it's just one of those things where you look back at history on the basis of what you're seeing human beings doing today. And it makes you, it makes you start to understand where people get so touchy when you want to talk about the truth. Everybody wants this American exceptionalism, this idealized history. Well, that's not the truth. I think we need to embrace our truth. We need to embrace the things that we did wrong in order to fix them and do the right things and to avoid our mistakes. And, and once you let yourself perceive that maybe the things that you've been taught about the past you know, aren't as rosy as you might seem, you can start digging into it, and you find that there are a lot of examples where prior to World War II, there was a pretty strong movement of people that were in support of what the Nazis were doing. Hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't want to sit here and go through all the examples, but you can find them... People, I, you know, it's one of those cases where you say, don't go to the textbooks. Look at the, the things that were written at that time. And it is a little bit scary how much of what is taken as history in the United States, people get so offended. You're not, a lot of things, you're not allowed to have just an honest discussion. 
people get offended by these things. And it's like, no, we're just having an intellectual conversation, looking at the past, trying to uncover the truth. That should never bother anybody. I think uh, one of the things um, that uh, seems to be going on is um, this 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 extremist moment in our history is much more extreme than the Tea Party was. I think there's a very big difference, and, and I'm sure you would see it similarly, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, the Tea Party was considered um, a group that was uh, uh, basically uh, having freedom of speech and, and, and resisting the, um, well, basically the election of Barack Obama. And from that yeah. point on, we saw more violence involved in this. And now to have the different entities, Proud Boys and Three Percenters and Oath Keepers coming to, as you mentioned, school boards, but coming armed. Yeah. This is, uh, this is a whole different thing. Well, I think that got opened up with, with Trump and his increase in violent rhetoric. Well, stay, that he's used during his campaign. Stay with us, Walter, because I'm talking to you. We're talking to Walter Rhine, and this is Outspoken on Radio 111 with Joy Silver. fierce she's bold she's outspoken here's radio 111's proud progressive joy silver welcome back and welcome back to walter ryan we're talking today about the big lies the unleashing of fascism in america but before we uh continue our discussion with walter uh, the question of the day is what did germany's brown shirts eventually evolve into what did germany's brown shirts eventually evolve into and you can text us the answer at 760-699-0202 that's 760-699-0202 and put your name in and we'll give you a shout out and you'll have an opportunity to win those 25 points so uh, back to you, Walter. Uh, we were talking about uh, the violence involved and um, what's happening today across the country and how it's different from resistance groups or freedom of speech or any of the uh, original, I guess, um, protests against what's happening politically. So, Yeah, I think what we're seeing today that's different is just the the willingness of politicians to use their platform, you know, and the extra visibility afforded to them by their status as political leaders to make violent threats for physical harm against their political opponents and and rivals. And, you know, the the things that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has had to put up with are just just terrible. And then, you know, when you have have the President of the United States tweeting a video, as Trump did, of a man who screams white power, 
it has an effect, and it emboldens people. It, it, it's, you know, they call it the dog whistle. It brings out um, your most radical of the, of the right wing, and they feel that they are allowed now to go out and commit acts of violence, and that's what we're seeing. It's interesting that we use that term dog whistle, but I think we're, we're beyond dog whistle um. <laughs> Everybody can hear it now. Yeah. Everybody and can hear. You know, and that's part of the issue. I mean, it isn't it isn't veiled coding that's going on. I think it maybe that was the way it was presented uh, officially and originally. But we, I think, have gone far beyond people. Only those who are in the know and recognize the codes <laughs> and signals at this point in time. And it seems to be yeah. right out there. And I think that and that's a consequence. Yep, yeah. that's a consequence of not responding. And it, it's really frustrating where they. I don't know why the other side has this idea that they can, you know, just wait it out and this will go away. Because historically, when has ever, when has that ever worked? Where, you know, you see these descents into fascism doesn't magically disappear. We, we're going to have to respond at some point legally, you know, not with the violence they're using. That's what I'm not. I'm not saying that. But what they're doing is lawless, and it, you know, it can't be tolerated. What do you think we should be doing, uh, or what do you think the current um, the current government should be doing differently than it's doing right now? Well, there was a good start today where Bannon got taken into custody, you know, so I think hopefully, you know, that's the beginning. We'll, we'll see more arrests. I mean, there have been consequences for the uh, from the January 6th insurrection, but I'd like more visibility for that. Uh, you know, the newspapers and, and the media gleefully showed the videos of the insurrectionists attacking the Capitol, I would like to see the videos of them weeping as the police show up at their door to arrest them. You know, put that on the news, too, because we glorify the violent aspect of it. And our, our country is pretty irresponsible about showing the consequences of some of these behaviors. And there are consequences. That's interesting uh, that you say that. Um, I, I think you have uh, you have something there with um, putting the the media focus on that. And I, I guess what uh, concerns me is that the former... Uh, so-called president, um, he called the media uh, uh, the enemy of the people, and yet they seem to want to portray uh, the story very differently. The narrative is more, uh, so in a sense, supportive of, uh, certainly visual, of um, what the extremists are doing. Now, how, how do you feel about that? <laughs> I I completely, it's it's baffling to me. I really don't have any idea how this is happening but he recently went on record and he's been in the news for saying he expressed sort of an approval for the crowd um chanting to hang mike pence mm-hmm. and this doesn't it doesn't make any sense that he's so there's a tape of him saying he's like i can't remember his exact words so but it was not a it was not a denouncement of that of the crowd chanting that and it, that should be it, it, and then there's really no repercussions from the from that statement, and I don't understand why Mike Pence isn't, you know, taking action. It, it, if I were in his position, I would feel like they were, the president had tried to kill me. That's what I would feel if I was there. So I don't understand why this is. And you know, I just I really just don't have an answer for why. No, there's no not a stronger response to what you know what's appearing in the media. Yeah. What do you, uh, and maybe this has to do with Mike Pence, and I don't know, but how, how do you feel about the, um, the religious uh, aspect of the support system for uh, what's going on in this, on this violent way? I mean, they, they, there's a constant discussion of save the children, and yet <laughs> armed, yeah. 
armed militias yep. are appearing at school boards. How, how, do, how do we reconcile that with the, the, the supposed yeah. philosophy here? Well, I, I looked up an article from um, Scientific American about how to radicalize people, and the sacred concepts are the way to do it, and religion, of course, is one of those. Well, thank you, Walter, and thank you for being our guest today. That was Walter Rhine, and you're speaking here on Outspoken with Joy Silver at Radio 111. Turning back the ugly wave of hate that seeks to divide. Joy Silver is Outspoken on Radio 111. We're back here in the studio, and um, please text us at 760-699-0202 for the question of the day, if you have the answer. What did Germany's brown shirts eventually evolve into what did Germany's brown shirts eventually evolve into? We have several uh, entries, but our first one uh, comes. Uh, I'm looking to see if they included their name, and they did not. Um, mm-hmm. But it is somebody local because it is a 760 area code oh. uh, that they sent it from, but they answered the SS. Oh my goodness. Well, that, wait a minute. They get the 25 social justice points. Yep, and uh, looks like we had a couple of other people, only one of them uh, who had submitted uh, with the same um, sane, uh, same response. response. And uh, we also, we heard, uh, the only one who has a name here that sent us a message today was from Pierre, who wrote and said, great, great guest. Oh, well, Another good show and a great guest. Well, thank you, Pierre. Thank you for listening and thank you for our guest. And uh, did we mostly have that same answer on that question? Yeah, actually, I just realized that one didn't actually have an answer on it. Um, but the uh, the other uh, message that we got, which didn't have a name, uh, did, did say the SS as well. Well, we yeah. have quite the educated listenership, I think, and that's the proof of it. So I'm giving 25 points to everyone, including you, Pierre, for saying nice things. Uh, so we want to be sure that you all have your 25 points for that <laughs> fabulous answers. You know your history. You know your history. Well, we... Um, We have today on our show The Big Lies and the Unleashing of Fascism in America with us our second guest, and that is Phil Drucker. He is a recently retired and still recovering lawyer who currently teaches constitutional law at the California Desert Trial Academy in Indio, California. I should, by the way... uh mention that your guest also submitted an uh, answer, and I think he may have been um, partially tongue-in-cheek in in saying Republicans. Oh, well, 
We'll have to give him the 25 points after the interview. (laughs) Well, when Phil's not in class or lecturing, he's probably drinking coffee, petting his dogs, and looking to get in someone's way and make some good trouble. So welcome, Philip Drucker. How are you today? Well, I'm doing fine, Joy. How are you? I'm doing really well. Uh, We're talking about the big lies and uh, Mm. the unleashing of fascism in America, and I'm sure you have something to say about these big lies, as as you are indeed a teacher of constitutional law. Yeah, uh, I have, uh, you know, my own particular views uh, about what's going on in America right now and how the big lie plays into it. Um, You know, interestingly enough, uh, history has told us that the bigger the lie, the easier it is to accept. And persons like Hitler, who went out of their way to tell the biggest lies they possibly could, sort of showed that when things become so unattainable that all of a sudden when somebody offers them to you, they seem obtainable. And because of that, people just drop their natural abilities to sift through what's true and what's not. And they tend to go for the fantasy world. So I see us as going through a very similar uh, phase in America. That um, our, our previous guest, Walter Ryan, also felt uh, that way. And he was also seeing kind of a repeat of uh, history repeating itself and also felt like the um, American public was not sufficiently concerned about these particular issues, particularly the insurrection. I mean, we are seeing right here in blue California uh, all kinds of militias and coalition, freedom coalitions and Oath Keepers and Proud Boys showing up in Shasta County and in Stanislaw County mm-hmm. and in Modesto. And they're showing up at city council meetings and they're against new police oversights initiative. And they call themselves, um, well, there's even a sister, uh, a sister group called uh, Mama Malicious. So now we... <laughs> <laughs> it's even hard to say because, you know, there are so many words that it sounds similar to. I have to be careful I say it appropriately. But um, mm. it's a very, it's a very, um, it's a scary time, I think. Uh, what do you think about that, Phil? Well, I I think that these are some of the areas. And, and by the way, your last guest was quite good. I really enjoyed his, uh, speak, his lecture as well. Um, I think that these are some of the things that we should start to be more aware of and more worried about, uh, particularly uh, in our own backyard. I think most of you will be able to go out the door and find some of this uh, in California, if anywhere else. The reason why Northern California, though, is so interesting is because they actually have a plan that's based on the collapse of our society. So why you see all of these persons up there making up these groups and plans and everything else is they're assuming that they are going to be successful. Now, what they're going to be successful at is removing, you know, the federal government, uh, the state government, whatever they happen to have a you know problem with that day. And they truly believe that they're going to be the people that step in and set things right. And so we have to watch these people. Uh, it's very, very unrealistic, uh, particularly up in the north. We know that the northern, uh, very top of California has an open movement right now that they want to uh, cut off the tip, so to speak, and then become the state of, if not the, you know, 
sovereign nation of Jefferson. Now, if they did do that, one of the things they've forgotten is that they would make West Virginia look like the Taj Mahal. They have no money up there. It would be an absolute broke establishment to the degree that they would start in bankruptcy. So exactly how are they going to run a nation with no money? How are they going to run a nation with no real infrastructure? How are they going to run a nation that basically is going to leave everything to, you know, the providence of God and to the fact that they're right and that, uh, you know, as they used to say back in the old days, you know, when everybody used to attack attack their governments in Europe, they weren't worried about it because God was on their side. So, unfortunately, most... Please. No, um, well, God being on their side—that's that's an interesting thing. There's a lot of Bible quoting, but but seems to be hand-picked Bible quotes. You know, I, I don't mm-hmm. hear much about turn the other cheek or, you know, feed the poor parts of the uh, parts of the Bible. But um, I think the succession plans have sort of, and maybe you differ on this, but I think the succession the succession plans of of these groups have sort of uh, kind of faded away to to a more Turn, take the whole federal government over at this point. And so these pockets of um, insurrectionists, I guess one might be able to call them, building their their own pockets of armies ready to roll forward, I find this very extremely frightening. How do you see the Constitution protecting us from any of this? Well, you know, it's funny you should uh, ask me that because... Um, I was just looking through, not surprisingly, some information about Chad Bianco and our own local problem that we have here. Uh, He's our sheriff, for those of you that are outside of the uh, area. But one of the things that I found very interesting is he said in one of his interviews that the Second Amendment exists to protect the First Amendment. This is completely wrong. The First Amendment exists to protect the Second Amendment and all of the other amendments that I'm not even quite sure he and his cadre of revolutionaries even know exist. But it is clear that they what they're doing is they're looking at the Constitution as if being driven by the Second Amendment, that somehow this right to arm yourself and then go out and administer justice as you see fit, according to who knows what Authority, although I have heard the words things like God's righteous justice thrown around left and right. <laughs> and so these, these are the things that worry me when persons get it into their head that they forget. The First Amendment is a gift. It's an incredible gift that we have in America. I mean, go to a country where there isn't. And imagine not being able to protect your Second Amendment rights or your fourth or your fifth because you can't speak out. You can't even speak out. And so what does that do? It makes us turn to more extreme means. The way that they see, I think, to solve their problems is to shoot it. But that certainly has nothing to do with the Constitution, and it certainly has nothing to do with being part of a well-regulated militia. So, and and we had a discussion about the Second Amendment last show, but I'm I'm still very interested in, uh, do you think that we need the Second Amendment at this point? I mean, there is a standing army at this point. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that conceived of when there was not a standing army? 
Uh, yeah, uh, that's the the whole where the Second Amendment actually finds its origin is in, believe it or not, 1100 A.D. England, where King Alfred the Great, who is the one who actually uh, united, he's the one who put the U.K. in the U.K. He's actually the guy that did that. He decided he didn't want to pay for armies anymore because they were too expensive. So basically what he did was he ordered everybody to go out and purchase a weapon, whatever that meant, and be ready to fight if he wanted you to. And that's actually where it comes from. And so the people would go out and get whatever uh, weapon they would find, and then they would break into uh, what were called back then musters. And the musters of persons who were usually in your village or whatever have you would train together. And then if it ever did come time for a war, these musters would come together as the militia. Mm -hmm. And that's how you avoided having a standing army. So, now... Those musters, though, <laughs> cut the muster, huh? Those musters, yeah. <laughs> those musters, were they not? Um, did they not keep their arm, uh, their arms in a uh, uh, in a, uh, a place? I mean, they didn't. They, it wasn't a state of open carry in these villages. Well, in the, well, here's the funny part: is um, that back in those days. Uh, not really that many people owned weapons. It was actually very unusual. So a lot of the people weren't very happy about that. Uh, also, in the history of England, there's another problem, too, which we don't have today, which, again, makes the Second Amendment somewhat uh, useless, which is that whenever the Protestants were in power, they would disarm all of the Christian militias. Whenever any of the Christian <laughs> president, uh, president kings were in power, they would disarm the protesters. Uh, Protestants. And so you have these religious battles about who could and could not own a gun based on religion, if you could even have a gun. I mean, most of them did not have, you know, well, back in 1100, none of them did. But, you know, a lot of them would go out, and depending on what your weapon was, was what order you took in the army. So you didn't want to be up front with a broom. That's where the Second Amendment comes from. All right. Well, stay with us, Phil. Uh, we'll continue our discussion on Outspoken, the Big Lies, Unleashing a Fascism in America. has a voice and she's not afraid to use it radio 111 presents outspoken with joy silver now here's joy uh, we're here today uh, our second guest phil drucker who says he's recently retired and still recovering lawyer i don't even dare to ask him what he's recovering exactly from because that would probably be a whole nother radio show <laughs> but anyway welcome back phil and thank you for having this discussion with us today um, I do want to ask you, um, do you have a definition of fascism, and what would that be, and are we right in calling today's situation politically by that name? 
you know, uh, interestingly enough, you know, I'll be, that's been something I've been thinking about. And um, I recently came up with a new definition for what we're going through right now, which I think is, uh, I can definitely say it seems fairly obvious we're going through. Uh, I would call our form of fascism right now is privilege over politics. In other words, there are people who are so desperate to hold on to their privileges that they're willing to overlook what the actual meaning or why we would even have a federal government or a state government or any sort of political situation where the very basis of politics is to actually compromise. And these people simply don't want to compromise away their privilege. That's uh, that's that's an interesting way to look at that. Um, do you think it's as uh, as serious an issue uh, for the country today? I mean, are, is there any way out of this? Well, there, the easiest way would be for the privileged to understand that their privilege is going away, whether they like it or not. And because what's happening in the United States is we're becoming more homogenous every day to the degree where things like privilege based on race will be some thought in the past that people are going to wonder why in the world we did that. And at that point, I hope the persons that, you know, lost their privilege realize that they really did not lose very much. And in fact, they gained a whole world of diversity and a whole new world of people and places and things that they really never even imagined possible. You know, that's part of the greatness of America. And you either accept that, that that is why we have not only survived, but thrived as a nature, mm-hmm. as a nation. That because d- we understand diversity. Well, do we really understand diversity? I mean, I don't think there's any, um, there's always a, uh, a call to hearken back to the good old days. And, but the good old days were not so good for everyone. Well, it's funny because that's true. And yet at the same time, it is the purple people who scream and rant and rave about the Taliban who want to go back to 6th century A.D. (laughs) Like this is such a terrible idea. You know, it actually horrified me the other day when I was looking through uh, some Supreme Court documents, some of the things that are going on lately. And uh, my, my, my now, and I mean this facetiously just as I talk about Republicans, but but I, my favorite justice right now has got to be Barrett. I, I just love Amy. Not only does she not want to, I mean, she's like Scalia, but even worse. <laughs> Wait a minute. Scalia, you love, even, I, I, I'm not getting farther than you love Amy. <laughs> so let's, oh, she's so great. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't want to go back to the founding fathers. She wants to go back to 1609 <laughs> to find out what we're all about when the pilgrims came over not to practice religious freedom. They didn't care what anybody else did. They just wanted to be free to practice their religion. And because of that, they did whatever they could to maintain that status, including keeping, uh, you know, not not being, you know, facetious about it again, including killing the local hosts who kept them alive during the first winter. Otherwise, they would have all frozen to death because they came out here without even knowing how to plant a seed. Well, this is the this is the the um, uh, American history of um, the the tale of two Thanksgivings. I think it were it would be called if mm-hmm. I were writing it. Um, and so it's kind of timely that you're discussing that particular um, piece of history, mm-hmm. i.e., uh, American mythology, 
And uh, I think that's a, that's a very important piece of this. And I think we see this um, continually uh, wanting to rewrite um, history books and be sure that certain things are never spoken about. I mean, I've seen I've seen um, narratives about uh, slavery being good for uh, people of African American uh, African Americans and how they actually mm-hmm. liked slavery and uh, they were happy with it. And the relationship was great, and yet this is this is serving as American history. What um, does the Constitution of the United States protect us, Phil? I mean, I think a lot of people are are they're they're seeing the the, the weaknesses in our system. How do you? Uh, what is your view about this? Well, <laughs> my first uh, advice would be that for people who wish to delve in the Constitution and constitutional issues. Uh, should really read it. That would be really good. Um, read it for yourself and see what it actually says. Because most of the persons that I treat, uh, that I teach and treat, have never heard most of what's actually in it. So Phil Drucker is telling us to read the Constitution before you deign to speak about it. Thank you so much, Phil, and thank you, Walter. This has been Joy Silver with Outspoken. Next week, we'll be talking about the Wild West, the mythology of the Wild West, and the portrayal of women in film.